I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And when was the last time you were really, truly curious about something? Something new, different, foreign, uncomfortable even. And not just a passing glance or a quick perusal, but a deep, active interest that takes you places you never thought you'd go. Our guest this week believes that for us to better understand our world and each other, we must be proactively, intentionally curious. Monica Guzman is the Director of Digital and Storytelling at Braver Angels and the host of CrossCut's monthly interview series, Northwest Newsmakers. A Seattle-based journalist who lives for good conversations sparked by challenging questions, she's co-founder of Seattle newsletter, The Evergrey, and a recent fellow at the Henry M. Jackson Foundation and Harvard's Neiman Foundation for Journalism. Her guide to staying curious in dangerously divided times is due to publish Ben Bella Books in 2022. Monica, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm really, really excited <laughs> for everything we're going to talk about. Well, me too. What a coincidence. <laughs> so there is a lot of ground for us to cover today as we kind of talked about in the lead up to this conversation. And I'm going to do my best to not let this unravel into a one-hour Seattle love fest, though selfishly, <laughs> I would be perfectly happy if it did. But let's start with your four steps to being curious. Now, you first laid them out publicly in your appearance on a February 2021 Braver Angels Forum entitled, quote, Can Curiosity Heal Our Divides? End quote, co-starring a fellow guest of the show, Alexandra Hudson. So what are these four steps and why are they important? Well, I'll begin with the second part of that. Curiosity is something that we treat like a little muse that flits about our lives and sort of decides to come when we're feeling maybe joyfully creative. And we're very grateful for curiosity. And then we wave goodbye, right? I think that we're at a time in the world and in all of our shared lives where we need to use curiosity proactively. And in order to do that, we need to understand some of the basics about how it works. So these four steps are an attempt to do that. The first step is to mind the gap. So curiosity is found in the gap between what you know and what you want to know. And it's a craving, it's a desire for filling that gap. It's incredibly powerful at its most intense. But what you need is to keep your attention on that gap. If your attention drifts, that's it. <laughs> You've lost your curiosity. It's not like the other cravings in our lives, like hunger and thirst, where you're hungry till you eat. You're not curious until you find the answer. You're curious until something distracts you or you decide to stop paying attention. The second step is to gather knowledge. Curiosity needs kindling. If you tread over the same networks, if you read the same sorts of voices, you know, you'll get curious to go deeper into things, but you may not find yourself getting broader. And that to me is, is one of the most important steps because, because there's such a need right now to get broader. And, and I'm sure we'll come back to that. Then there's the step of embracing complexity. We tend to think of a puzzle, a question that is really complex as something we don't want to do because it is confusing. You know, confusion is sort of this way of saying, Ugh. <laughs> wait a minute, never mind. Like I'm, I'm confounded. I'm confused. This is not fun. I don't want to go explore this. I don't, 
this desire for an answer here is, is no longer strong enough to get me through this negative feeling. If you recast confusion as complexity, it's a new framing where you go, oh, hang on. This is just many layers. This could be many steps. Why don't I take the first one? And then the last step is the most critical because in a way it's also the first one, <laughs> which is we have to reject the easy answers that are out there to our questions about the world and particularly about other people. There are a lot of easy answers. The arch enemy of curiosity is certainty. There's nothing to go learn if you think you already know, right? There's no gap if you think you already know. And there are a lot of things that we think we already know about other people that we don't. So it really begins and ends and is constantly coming back to the step of reject those easy answers so you can find deeper ones. So a lot of what you just said, in spirit anyway, and in tone, reminds me of a conversation I had with Amanda Ripley, also a journalist who then became an author. My question would be, what's the chicken and egg here for you? Were you curious and then became a journalist? Was your curiosity kind of forwarded by your experience in journalism? What was the kindling that started the fire of curiosity, so to speak? Mm, yeah, that's, that's a great question. I actually used to be pretty terrified of other people <laughs> when I was young. I still remember a Burger King in Summersworth, New Hampshire. And I don't know if I was eight or nine. And my mother, it was a standoff. My mother just saying, you will go up to that register and you will ask them for another salt packet because they are out of salt packets and you will go and you will ask them. And I'm like crying. I'm like, I do not want to talk to strangers. I, do, I, I don't, I can't. It's just too scary. So that's where I started. And journalism beckoned me with the opportunity to tell stories. And what I didn't anticipate was how deeply in love I would fall with this bottomless mystery, I think, of people. There's all kinds of questions you can ask about issues and events and, and whatnot. To me, there, there's only one bottomless well, and that's each individual person. There is always so much to discover, right? And we know that just from our relationship. I've been married to my husband for 11 years. Like, There's always more to learn. It just never ends. We can still end up in an incredibly passionate and lively conversation with another human being, no matter how many times we have talked to them before. It never ends. So that is the kind of, that's the kind of curiosity that, that I feel, it's almost like, like the gravitational pull. Like I'm just constantly like, oh my God, people are cool. <laughs> people are so cool. And the whole world is people. It's all people. That's the frame with which I look at everything. All of our problems, all of our issues, cross-communication, all of the tensions that are so hard to resolve. And it all kind of, it all comes down to people. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I do have a podcast after all. But, you know, I'm going to kick off a bit of a sub-theme here. And we talked about this before the recording. I want us to picture it as kind of a, a tiny, cynical monkey on the shoulder of perhaps some of our listeners, okay? Mm -hmm. This little monkey that can somehow speak English and it's going to ask some questions every once in a while in an effort to kind of push back against perhaps some of the silver linings, right? Yeah. So, okay, you said that the arch enemy of curiosity is certainty. I would agree. But it seems like 
today in the age of the internet, there are so many ways in which we are incentivized to be uncurious, right? Mm -hmm. Like, let's take, for example, a Google search. A Google search will often start from a place of curiosity. It starts with a question. How do I do X? Where do I go to find Y? What is this mysterious looking wart on my arm? All those, (laughs) the things that, the things that we start off as curious, right? But Google responds to curious questions with certain answers, right? Right. And we want certainty. We crave it. I mean, it it often leads to a lot of uh, arguments with our doctors because we're so certain that what we read on WebMD has (laughs) to be correct, right? Mm -hmm. So I guess my first question, and and sort of a multi-parter here, is how do we remain curious in an era in which we seem to be so disincentivized from staying so? Right. You brought up such good points. Certainty is not bad. We wouldn't be able to get anything done if we couldn't just call some questions answered and move on, (laughs) right? Action takes information that we are to some degree sure of. So certainty is, is definitely important. And it's also very soothing, particularly with topics that scare us. There's been research done into how much curiosity is really an attempt to avoid a bad feeling, a bad feeling of not knowing, right? Back when we were all waiting for the vaccines to come out at all against COVID, I remember this sort of stress about, when can I get vaccinated? When? (laughs) When? And I, I want the bad feeling to go away. And I remember that I had a meeting starting any minute, but I stumbled into this interactive somewhere on the internet that actually, if you plugged in, you know, your age and where you lived and whatever, it would actually tell you when the vaccines are likely to get to you. And uh, I I did this too. Yes. I arrived quite late to my meeting because it was, <laughs> it just felt that important for me to get rid of the bad feeling for me to know and be sure. So we do have to acknowledge that certainty can be extremely soothing and extremely important. And we want to get it as soon as we can. So part of how we stay curious when we are so conditioned to want to resolve questions as soon as we can is to recognize the difference between the questions that can be resolved, you know, to a satisfactory degree, and the ones that, frankly, we just have to leave open for longer. Okay. To play devil's advocate or cynical shoulder monkey one more time. So I was reading a little bit a while ago, and I don't want to get too far afield here, but I do feel like these things are related. I can't remember who came up with this idea around why conspiracy theories are comforting, but it made so much sense to me when I read it. It's this idea that complexity, kind of touching on what you were saying, where complexity is scary and specifically chaos is terrifying, right? We don't want to believe that a random guy can just walk up to John Lennon who has accomplished so much, right? And done so much for the world that just some random dude can walk up to him and kill him, right? Or that a guy with a rifle in Dallas can take out the president of the United States or that 19 very determined individuals can take down the World Trade Center, right? Mm -hmm. The chaos inherent in something like that. And I think we're seeing this around COVID and the vaccines and Uh, We could spiral into that nightmare all day, but (laughs) so we won't. I think that the hypothesis, if I'm remembering it correctly, is that in our desire for certainty in what can feel like such a chaotic world, Mm. that we reach for answers that provide a simplified and usually false 
answer to a very chaotic and complex set of circumstances. Mm-hmm. How do we avoid it? Mm-hmm. That is really one of the major problems, major challenges right now in our society in a nutshell. Sometimes when we look for answers, it's not like two plus two equals four. The answer we're looking for is a story, a narrative where we know our place and we know the heroes and the villains. We know the relevant actors and therefore it gives us a script. It gives us a way to know what's going to happen. And that gives us peace. It's largely about that. And I think you can map that very simple need for knowing our place and how we relate to each other and to our world onto so many things that we see all across human existence, right? Everything from the communities we belong to, the ideologies we follow, you know, the faiths or religions that we ascribe to, everything really is rooted in a story about the world that we have chosen to accept as the narrative that we're, that, that we're going to follow, that, that we believe in, right? And a lot of those narratives are extremely healthy and coexist beautifully. And some of them are extraordinarily deviant and harmful. The issue then, of course, becomes that an individual person who becomes attached to a narrative does it for their own reasons. And people judging them from the outside, it's not going to help. It's understanding more intimately that just might. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that there are I don't know if it's personality types. I'm not exactly sure what the right word for it is. But I think that curiosity in a malignant form can be destabilizing to some people more so than others, right? Ooh, say more. Yeah. Yeah. And and we can sort of witness a curiosity and how it can sort of spiral <laughs> from a very young age, right? If you look at like a, a three or four-year-old, I've been on the receiving end of questions like this where mm-hmm. it's just the word why over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> until until you exhaust all of your adult knowledge and then start to sound like Calvin's dad and Calvin and Hobbes, where you're just yes. reaching for any answer just to get them to please stop asking why, because I don't know. I do think that there's something, whether it's our inner child or, or whatever it is, I think that there is something in us. And I think I talked about this with Jay Shapiro. It's that Kurt Vonnegut quote. I'm totally going to butcher it again, but it's mm-hmm. like, Tiger got to hunt, bird got to fly, man got to sit around and ask why, 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 basically. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) I know I'm misquoting it somehow, but it's that idea that within each animal, so to speak, there is baked into it an instinct and that our instinct is to just continue asking why. I'm trying to figure out and I'm asking this question maybe in four different ways to you, (laughs) but I hope you can understand what I mean by it is how do we encourage people to be curious, but also where do we draw the line where we can say together that some answers aren't going to be simple and some answers may never come. Mm. And if you reach the end of a line with a curious line of questioning and don't get a certain answer, mm. how can we be okay with leaving it open-ended? Yes. And I think, I think you, yeah, th- that last bit is the most important. Most questions that we've asked for a long time will never get an answer. They will never get a final answer, I should say. One of my favorite frameworks to think about this when you map it onto what one researcher I know calls wicked issues. He says wicked issues are those ones that keep coming up in society and that cannot be resolved once and for all. Or if they can, we're just not there yet. So for example, abortion or you know, immigration. Things where there's well, we're really, when you look closely, what what's happening is that there are good values in tension with each other. He tells a story about 9-11. We're coming up on the 20th anniversary of 9-11 and how 
before 9-11, airport security was a certain way. <laughs> and after 9-11, it was a different way. And what happened was the values that something like airport security puts into tension socially changed when 9-11 happened, when the attack happened. So for example, just to dig into that a bit more, you know, we have this concern about this value of security, right? A society of people who live together want to be safe. We also have this value of freedom to thrive and freedom to move around our society. We want people to be able to make their own decisions and direct themselves as they will. So then 9-11 happens. And then these questions arise. Well, hang on. <laughs> We're really concerned about security right now. And so the balance between security and freedom of movement shifted. And we had a new answer to the question of what is the right way to do security at the airport. And the answer now leaned more towards security and further away from freedom of freedom of movement. You got to take off your shoes, right? And then it went into some ugly places. Well, now we think we might need to profile certain kinds of people, all for the sake of, of safety and security of the greater whole. What about the fairness of that? That's another value that we care about, right? So each of these wicked issues, depending on when you ask, <laughs> when you ask the question, the values and tension may be quite different, all depending on the events that have happened and how we are interpreting them together. So those are the places where, like you said, we will absolutely keep asking why. We will not stop asking why, because the ground will always be shifting underneath us. And when I look around and I see, I see all the time, I see this frustration with people who go, the answer is just this. Can't we just do this? And the answer, and of course not. No, we can't. We could if everyone was exactly like you and figured, you know how you would put those values. You know how you would negotiate that tension. But what about that guy? You know, and her and them. What about everybody else? We all have our different priorities that we would bring to these questions. And, and sorry, but we, we, can't just <laughs> we can't just decide that one of those priorities reigns without trying to negotiate with all the others. Not if we want to live in a democracy anyway. It, well, that's, that's, <laughs> the, uh, that's the premise. Yes, exactly. Okay, so there are a couple things there that I'm going to temporarily put a pin into, which I can bake into the next section. But I want to go to Braver Angels, an organization that I mentioned a couple times now, in including the intro. Now, it's an organization I've witnessed firsthand here in Los Angeles, and one of its national leaders, John Wood Jr., was the featured guest in the first episode of this very podcast. So, what has your role as digital director entailed? And what have you learned about the organization as you've become more deeply involved with it? Mm. So my role, digital director and also director of storytelling, oh man, it's been, it's been so fun. I joined in May after a good year, year and a half of feeling myself pulled into volunteering with the organization. Brave Angels is largely a volunteer network. It is very grassroots. It's got people who retired and then spent more time working on Braver Angels than they, than they ever did during their careers, more dedication because there's just something so urgent to resolve here or to at least try to address together. And, and people are really, really dedicated. It's phenomenal to work with them. The piece of my role that I'm most excited about is the storytelling. I think that right, right now we're, we're suffering from a lack of models. I bet you would agree with this, but but we'll see. 
we're suffering from a lack of models of a better way. Usually when you see someone who is leaning liberal talking with someone who's leaning conservative, it's a fight. It's a debate. It's an argument. It's happening on national TV. And the point is not to learn from each other. The point is actually to speak to their audience and try to score points. The same on social media. Largely unintentionally, a lot of people, you know, well-meaning folks get sucked into feeling defensive, feeling provoked. I think of the internet as a non-place that makes us into non-people. I was saying earlier on that everything is people. And so when we forget- That's a great, I just want to just jump. That's really good. If you haven't put that on a poster or something. I <laughs> there you go. That's really Hashtag good. That. Yeah. But it is, right? I mean, anything that keeps us from seeing each other threatens us. I really believe that down to my core. And I think that the way that we are talking to each other and the way that we're not talking to each other has a lot of red flags for me. So coming back to storytelling- we're missing models on how conversations can happen in healthy ways, but we're also missing stories of regular people who have found their, their own reasons to think that we need to do something about all this. And those stories are everywhere, John. Oh my goodness. They are everywhere. And nobody's telling them. I could list off, you know, person after person that I've met through Brave Rangels, but not necessarily volunteers or people who work with me there, but the people who are the people who are finding themselves drawn to this larger mission of, of trying to, to build these bridges that we so desperately need, and again, are kind of like almost surprised to see themselves wanting to put so much energy into this. Off the top of my head, I'm thinking of Barbara and Rick, for example. Man, these two are incredible. They live in Minnesota. Barbara was the deputy chief of mission for the U.S. Embassy in Dublin, Ireland, until last year. And Barbara and Rick are a mixed marriage, an increasingly rare mixed marriage of Democrat and Republican. Barbara is liberal Democrat and Rick is conservative Republican. As things were heating up leading up to the 2020 election, Barbara and Rick basically looked at each other and said, we can serve our country better from home than from here. We need to go home. And so they did. She retired early from her tour of duty and they moved back to Minnesota with the express purpose of finding a way to tell their story about a marriage that has worked and the things that they have learned as people who pay a lot of attention to good communication. They want to tell their story so that they can help the nation. I mean, my gosh, you know, like, what? <laughs> I learned about them and I interviewed them and I, and, I, and I told their story. And that's just the beginning. I could tell you several more, but nobody's hearing, nobody's hearing this right? All we're hearing is the shouting. And it's just, it's not real. I just want people to see the truth. These things aren't being told and they need to be. There are a couple things that I want to touch on in what you just said. So one, a non-place that turns us into non-people that reminds me of a study that I read some years ago about what happens when we're in traffic and how to our listeners here, I don't know how you drive Monica, but to our listeners here, if you've ever been in a, you know, your car and someone cuts you off and you all of a sudden start spouting some very blue language that you wouldn't if you were, you know, let's say cut off in the shopping mall or on the sidewalk, right? If someone accidentally or purposefully walks in front of you a little too close on the sidewalk, chances are, chances are that you're not going to start calling them every single expletive that comes to mind because 
one, you can see them and you can see their physicality that they're human. And two, maybe public graces are keeping you from, you know, really speaking what's on your mind. Right. But there's a disambiguation, a, a disembodiment that happens when you're in a car because you don't see that other person as a person. You actually see them as a car. Um, it's a weird trick of psychology that happens. We also, in our minds, I think what happens when we drive is we see the car, literally, we experience the car as an extension of our own bodies. They did brain scans that kind of back this up. And sort of similarly, we don't see our fellow drivers as other humans. We see them sort of just as objects. We see them as cars. Right. And uh, I think the internet, in many ways, to kind of yes and you here, Monica, is kind of one big traffic jam where we're not seeing the other people on Twitter, on Facebook, et cetera, whether or not they have photos of themselves in their profiles, they might as well be photos of their Honda Civics <laughs> because we're, I don't think we would yell, at least most of us outside of a march or something. I don't think most of us would yell and scream expletives at our neighbors and our friends if they were sitting across us from the dinner table, but yet we do so on the comment wall of our Facebook newsfeed. So that's the first thing that jumps out. I guess before I go on, is there anything you wanted to, to add to that? If we're sitting in traffic and other people, we see other people as cars, I would say that on something like social media, we see other people as opinions. They're just opinions, stripped down, nothing else to them. And opinions are constantly, it's like their purpose is to challenge each other. Their purpose is to win. It's, it's difficult to see an opinion on its own and not feel implicated, right? Do you agree? Do you disagree? Do you know even what your opinion is? Right? People have talked about how the pressures of social media for everyone to have an opinion on everything. We don't have to. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Not until the internet did everyone feel this pressure to have an opinion on everything. That's the minimum viable unit that travels on there is what we think about everything. No, I was just going to just jump in real quick and say I think that you're absolutely right. And I think that it's also tied into this idea of. You know how once a cell phone existed, all of a sudden your work could reach you anytime after 5 or 6 p.m. Yeah. It's become such a problem even worldwide that France recently passed a law a couple of years ago saying that employers could legally not contact their employees after work hours. It actually became illegal. Now, I don't know if we'd ever get away with a law like that here in the United States, but we might want to think about it yeah. because I think that something similar is happening on social media. When you're posting all aspects of your life on social media, and this is one of the reasons I deleted everything that I have except for uh, the, mm. uh, the social media related to this podcast is because in the same way in the age of cell phones if your friend doesn't respond to your text or pick mm. up the phone when you call them as opposed to the 90s early 2000s where you tried calling and oh I guess they're not home I guess I'll just have to wait until 8 p.m. when Jane calls me back now it's you send a text and whether you have read receipts or not, if they don't get back to you within five or 10 minutes, you start, mm -hmm. you might start thinking, well, what's wrong? Does, yeah. does Jane not like me? Is she busy? Is yeah. what's going on here? Right. And none of that is probably true. But this idea that we can just message someone in a, in a moment's notice creates mm -hmm. this, this feeling in our mind that if they don't respond to us right away, that something must be amiss. And I think mm -hmm. that with social media, it's like that times 10. You know, Monica, I noticed that you said pray for Paris, but when the women's march came up, I noticed oh, you didn't gosh. you didn't you didn't comment at all. Oh, and yes, so yes. I guess I'm just wondering, you know, I'm just I'm just guessing, Monica, that you must care more about this subject than That's this other right. one. 
And it starts creating this nonstop machine that just chews us all up because yes. it means that you have to be complicit in every single, whether right or left, every single movement. Are you yes. protesting against or for Chick-fil-A? And if you haven't posted about it, it must mean that you don't care. And exactly. it creates this entire thing where we exactly. have to politicize every aspect of our lives. Yes. I'd never seen that happen to such an intense degree as last June. Last June was just another level. The murder of George Floyd, the protests across the country, the incredible just pitch that everything got to. You saw bestseller lists, right? Like books that were already a year or two old about race suddenly shoot to the top. And everyone was wondering, whose side are my friends on? Do they get it? Do they think I get it? Do they know that I get it? Do they know that I get it? Oh gosh, I better signal that I get it. I better put my make my profile picture, you know, black or whatever. And then the next day, oh, making your profile picture black is actually awful because, you know, you're making it hard for people to find, wait, what? You know, and it was just this, this mad frenzy of signals with no, no conversation about what we all were, like the subtext going on. This high stress sort of environment of wanting the world to be a better place, wanting to make sure that I and you and we all were doing what we could and doing the right thing. But then also, <laughs> to your point, everyone's looking at me. Everyone's looking at me and they're waiting to see what I'll post. Oh my gosh, right? I, I remember back that summer, like I, I really had stopped doing a lot of posting about anything political at all. And I remember suddenly thinking, oh my gosh, like I haven't posted about even like some of the biggest things going on, but I, I feel like I have to post about this. I have to, of course. I mean, geez, right? I'm thinking about it all the time. This is important. But then kind of hovering over my keyboard, like, how do I say this? Oh my gosh. Well, I can't say that. Oh, I need to say this and this, right? And I just wonder like how many, how many edits and re-edits and re-edits and re-edits and re-edits and re-edits were all these humans doing at their computers, trying to be seen by other humans for who they were trying to be, right? We're all trying to be good here. And we have mixed feelings about what's happening to our world, but we need everyone to believe that we're good. That's the most important thing. The codes that we send each other, the time, the worry, the anxiety, the significance, the expectations, really something else. Yeah. And I think it's important to note, and I, I think we're on the same wavelength here, that the concern is independent of whatever the issue is, right? So you use the murder of George Floyd last year as the example, because it was really at a fever pitch, you know, with the, yeah. the black Instagram squares, et cetera, the ha what are you using the right hashtags, et cetera. But I think it's important to note, and you tell me if there's any daylight between what you're saying and what I'm saying here, mm -hmm. is that the problem is not whether or not a person cares about a particular issue or whether or not they're particularly invested in that issue. That isn't the issue. The problem is, is that and what I think is exhausting for a lot of people is the feeling that they need to be, they need to care about mm. dozens of issues at the same time at mm. the, at the equal level that everyone else is at, right? Like if, if you're not cheering as loudly at this mm. football game as I am, then you must not like the team as much as I do. Mm. And also that we've eliminated this idea that it's okay if you don't care about everything equally, or mm. if you don't capital C care about something, it doesn't mean that you lower C care about it. Mm. So like if your if your life is dedicated to reforestation and you're planting trees every you know weekend or you're going to the beach and collecting trash or you're feeding the homeless mm. at homeless encampments every other weekend or all these other things that you're doing, right? 
we have limited time on this earth and we have limited energy. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I can mm-hmm. feel myself getting ahead of my final question here. It really matters. We have limited yes. time and energy that we can use to put out into the universe. And some people use that time and energy for social causes, and then they can only direct most of their time and energy towards a select few. And then other folks will direct their time and energy mostly towards their families. Yeah. Right. And does that make them yeah. less good if they care about their their ailing mother or their grandmother who can't get do grocery shopping for herself? And so they yeah. spend their weekends doing that rather than marching. The problem, Monica, and I think this is why these recorded conversations, these these long form conversations are so important, is that it's getting chewed up online. This idea that if you do not dedicate your time and energy to the exact causes that I do, then you're yeah. a worse human being than me. Yeah. And that is toxic. Yes. Yes. Yeah. No, there's, yes. <laughs> Total alignment there. What, what, what I think of is if people start telling their own stories into the same space, they will feel pressure to tell the same story. And I think that's what's happened. Places like Twitter and Facebook, but all these kinds of platforms is I tell my piece into Twitter and then I see other people's opinions. And if, and if they challenge my own, well, it, it, it makes me feel a little anxious a little judged. I don't want them to challenge my own. You know, I want to align with them. I'm, I'm sharing, yes, a very strange digital space, but it's still a shared space, right? Even in a very, very small way. And so we put this extra pressure on each other. Can't we all just tell the same story? I think we need to tell the same story, don't we? Everyone here has to, if not agree on like exactly every single issue, but we need to agree on the most important ones. And we all need to be talking about the most important ones, because otherwise, who are we? How do we relate to each other? How can we be sure that we're that we matter if we don't echo some of the things that we're saying into this shared space with a shared story? It's oh man, <laughs> you could go so many directions from there. Some some pretty metaphysical ones. Well. To steer us a, a little bit back towards Braver Angels so we don't get stuck in the metaphysical realm like some uh, sequel to Doctor <laughs> Strange, the monkey is back, Monica. Hi, monkey. The cynical monkey <laughs> is back. So speaking of Braver Angels, right, I want to talk about the problem of self-selection. Mm. So th- I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with the term immigrant pluck. I'm not. Immigrant This pluck. idea that, oh, you're not. Oh, wait. I think I've just figured it out, but why don't you tell me? <laughs> it's, the, it's this idea that oftentimes immigrants, especially here in America, but I think this probably holds true worldwide, oftentimes outperform the native born either in terms of life attainment, educational goals, et cetera, because the very people who are self-selecting to leave everything that they knew, their family, their friends, their culture, their language, et cetera, all the comforts of home behind in order to move to a new country and everything that that brings with it, right? The the kind of sometimes terrifying feeling of being a stranger in a new land, having to learn new customs, right? I mean, hell, I was in a foreign country on vacation for two weeks and I started feeling exhausted after it because I, <laughs> I just, I, I didn't feel like I could fit in anywhere, right? Right. So right. the idea of having to do that permanently, yep. moving to a new place, the idea of immigrant pluck is referenced to a self-selection mechanism that means that the people who are arriving are potentially more adaptive or more go get them or whatever you want to say because the very act of immigrating makes them so right they're less averse to risk they're they're more willing to go the extra mile quote unquote right and i want to be careful here i don't want to speak ill of anyone who doesn't immigrate but i i'm I'm trying to draw a parallel to what i think might be a self-selection issue with something like braver angels yes (sighs) 
do we know how and if having better conversations between adults who are already primed to have them Mm. has any direct effect on policy and outcomes that are often legislated by people who are less amicable to compromise? Yes. You're spot on. This is one of the biggest challenges to any organization that is working on what's sometimes called bridging or other times called pluralism is a, a term that's that's gaining some popularity. People are self-selecting. There are folks whose lives have brought them more quickly or more urgently to this problem. And there's a lot of people who frankly don't don't see this problem for their own reason, right? The folks who show up to Brave Rangers workshops, a, a lot of them there is a fire under them. There's a relationship they've got to resolve. There's already a deep interest in this. I actually think of the audiences. I don't even like the word audiences, right? Because it's all people. Like when you, when you, <laughs> the word audience is, is terrible because it makes people think of people as just one massive block that behaves in a certain yeah. way. I hate it. Right. But, and everyone anyway. claps now and everyone stands I now, etc. It's yeah. terrible. One of my favorite teachers ever, a woman named Holly Weeks, says that she's a public speaking coach. And she says that an audience is one person times the number of people in the room, right? That the individuality of people is, it's never good to forget that. Anyway. Mm, I like that. That's good. (laughs) But it's true. But anyway, I think of of the audience and, God, I say it again, (laughs) of people in three ways. One is there are folks who are already almost like true believers. They they know that bridging matters. They they know this is a big problem. They know that there's a better way to find. And so their main question is how? How do we find it? How do we find it? Like, tell me what to do, right? They're ready for the, I wouldn't say marching orders, but the shared best practices. And they want to plug in where they can to find them. It's a small group of people, but growing, right? Then, but here's where things get, in, get interesting. We also have partisans, right? There are people who I don't want to say, you know, folks are comfortable with <laughs> with the partisan environment. I, I think we've seen research that no one really is. Everyone finds something wrong with it, like that it's too much, too divided. But I will say that there are folks who definitely believe that, look, what we got to do is fight. You know, there are one side or the other. And like, this is gauntlet's been thrown. There's battles going on with the highest stakes. And my job is to be on my side fighting, Right. And that's great. Every society needs its fighters. It's the only way we change and evolve with the times. But those folks come to Braver Angels too. And what they come with is a different question. It's not a question, how do I do this? I don't think. I think it's the question, why does the other side believe what they believe? Why? You know, and it's, it's going back to the four steps of curiosity. It's, it's a confoundedness. It's, I want to get rid of the bad feeling. Why is the other side like that? And it may not be the most like charitable posture toward understanding, <laughs> but it's still a posture towards understanding. It's a first tiny little step, right? And so those folks are often the ones who might come to a Braver Angels debate. I don't know how familiar your listeners are with, with the format of, of that event or, or some of our podcasts and programs where we bring together someone who is on the left on something and who is on the right on something. And that person may come to that podcast or that conversation expecting the fight. They'll expect the fight and what they'll get is something else. They'll get honest confrontation between people with different views that are genuine, right? And shared in good faith. 
but that are not being shared in order to knock the other one down. They're being shared in order to create meaning between the two of them and then to explore that meaning and what it says and what it and what it does. It doesn't mean like we absolutely have folks like they'll come and they they believe what they believe and they will leave believing what they believe. This is not about changing minds. But what we will do is we will show I think even that audience that the only option here is not to show up with boxing gloves. It's not the only option. I know it's everything you see everywhere else but not here. Because we know that there's a better way and we're going to show it. And we're going to try to spread it as far as we can. So so that is really my answer is it's true that there are the true believers and they are our champions. You know, most of our volunteers for sure it's about all of them would fit into that category. But there are people who who come for the conflict and stay for the insights. I'd love to tease this apart a little bit with you. Specifically, this idea, can politics and change specifically, and maybe there are modern examples of this that I'm just not familiar with, let's say, Mm -hmm. but I'm sure we've all, everyone who's listening to this podcast, and I imagine you included, Monica, Mm -hmm. has been in a scenario where we're watching a campaign rally let's say for the quote unquote other side, right? Mm-hmm. Or even if it's not the other side, maybe if it's our own side, but they're talking about an issue that maybe we're not aligned with them on. And mm. uh, whether it's gun control, abortion, minimum wage, I mean, it would take the topic and run with it, right? And the person on the campaign stump, let's say, is talking about the other people who believe the other thing and they're doing it in a very uncharitable way, right? But you can see how uncharitable it is because you are the one who holds that belief. Right. But you see the crowd getting really riled up, right? Because the person that they're framing in this conversation, you know, it's like, it's not that they want the right to bear arms. They want to, they want children murdered in the streets and blah, blah, blah. And people like, yeah, we have to, you know, gun control now, et cetera, et cetera. And you could be sitting, you could see someone sitting there, right? Like who's, let's say a a gun owner. I I have some gun owners on one side of my family. I've never owned a gun, but Mm -hmm. I know that they're very safe gun owners and they're veterans and former police officers and they don't want anyone to die. But it seems, and I think I'm finally finding a way to formulate this, Mm -hmm. the most popular and perhaps, and this is the question I'm posing to you, the only way to agitate and energize people for radical change, right? Whether it's the 40-hour work week, whether it's child labor laws, whether it's gun control, whether it's abortion, climate change, taxation, whatever. Can you really motivate your base, whatever that base is, Mm -hmm. to get out of their house and vote and canvas and go door to door on a campaign that is built around, well, I mean, the other side, at the end of the day, they're really good people. And exactly. really, if we if we think about it, like, are we that yeah. far apart? And I mean, they have really good reasons, too. And my point is, is that, again, and maybe and I'm, I'm wondering if Braver Angels, and I'm saying this with respect, mm-hmm. is running a parallel campaign to how the process of politics and campaigning must work. And, and I, don't know mm-hmm. if, I, don't, I don't know if it must work this way. I'm going to put it to you. But as a hypothetical, it must work in order to get the right to vote for women or mm-hmm. any any number of life-changing political things that have happened, do those things need or require some kind of mild to severe miscategorization or demonization of the other side in order to rile up the base to vote? Right. I mean, the answer I want to give that I'm not really certain of is no. They do not require that, but it is the easiest way to get it. So 
I studied film in college and Hey, me too. Yay. And I learned, all oh right, you're in LA. I learned, I remember just a fun fact, which is that the cheapest genre of movie to make and succeed at is horror. It turns out it's just not a lot of, you know, budgets are actually pretty low and fear is cheap. It's not, doesn't take a lot of thought to produce those spikes in an adrenaline. Those are easy and they work. They absolutely work. So I think my, my strict answer is no, but I don't think it's realistic, right? I do believe that if you, if you just kind of come in and say, everybody play nice, please, we're better than this, not going to get anywhere, right? Because look, like we all have our ideals, but I've spoken to, you know, for example, I've spoken to Derek Kilmer and Charles Timmons, and they are the co-chairs of the Select Committee to Modernize Congress. So Congressman Timmons is a Republican from South Carolina. Congressman Kilmer is from here in Washington State. He's a Democrat. And talking to the two of them as representatives in the, in the federal government, it was extremely clear to me when I talked to them that it's a toxic workplace up there. Congressman Kilmer was, was saying that when he first got the job, what people would, would ask him who, who had known him basically was, are you okay? He told me that they, they sort of treated him almost like he had a terminal illness. Like, are you okay? Oh my gosh, you're in Congress. Good Lord. How are you? What? How are you handling this? Right? How are you holding up? How are you handling <laughs> this? Both of them were just so straightforward with me. Like, look, working here kind of sucks. <laughs> it's like, we, we want to serve the public, but this, we're trying to change it from the inside. And, and people are, politicians are trying to change it from the inside. But I'll tell you, the news organization that covers the incredibly fascinating hearings of the Select Committee to Modernize Congress, which is tasked by Congress to, you know, among other things, like address the dysfunction in the polarization, C-SPAN covers it. John, just C-SPAN, right? It's just not sexy enough for anybody else. And Frank, I'm getting a little pissed off because something is wrong here. So this idea, right, that all politicians are just like, look, this is the way the game is played. It's just not true. You mentioned in, my, in the intro that I had been part of a, a fellowship called the Henry M. M. Jackson Fellowship, and that's named after an, a legendary senator from the state of Washington, Henry M. Jackson. And so we went to D.C. and we had some very interesting on-background conversations with senators and, and representatives. And, you know, I can't name names, but, but I will tell you, when the cameras are not on, they will tell you what they're really doing. Our elected officials are working tirelessly to get stuff done. And it seems sometimes like the ones that really get the stuff done are the ones that you never hear about, right? Because the headlines have been so corrupted by whatever divides. And I know that sounds extreme. Maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit because I just get so mad about this. But I saw a truth there that you just don't see if you follow political news, not even close. Our representatives are people too. And they don't like this. They want help. But they're having the damnedest time trying to get that message out. Is it that they don't like it? Or is this, again, a self-selection issue, right? I think what you're saying is really important, that the ones who are striving towards the goal that many, so many of us want aren't the ones we're seeing for the very reason that they're not the ones we're seeing. If we think about, I'm not going to name names here, but I imagine all of us can conjure up images of congressmen and women and senators who we hear about and see about on the news and social media, and they're always appearing on Fox News or MSNBC, et cetera. But listening to you talk, Monica, I've realized that it's like the same 10 people 
yeah. over and over and oh, over yeah. again. Oh, yeah. And it's created this feeling in my mind, which I'm just now realizing is incorrect. Is that all yeah. people in Congress nope. are doing this? Nope, nope. It the is, vast you, majority you of them it. seem to be keeping their heads down that's and working. That's exactly right. And that's what we're not seeing. And that's, I respect them so much. But here's the other thing that's that's quite sad is there is one one very highly placed person in Washington who's been there a long time and she's fantastic. And she was she was telling me and, and us, she avoids the Sunday talk shows. Because as far as she's concerned, once you are on those talk shows, it's like you are entering the ring. And once you enter the wrestling ring, you're a wrestler. And once you enter the rest the wrestling ring as a wrestler, you are fighting the other side, right? So if she shows up to those shows, her other side politically sees her as the enemy because that's the climate we are in, right? And so she knows that anything she works on will get compromised by her merely trying to find an audience, trying to get a stage at all for what she's doing. But, but here, here's the part that's really sad. She's been there a long time. She doesn't have anything to worry about. She's pretty established. What's, what's really scary is that the people who want to get there need the audience. And if they're going to get the audience, guess what they're going to need to do? You know, they're going to need to fight. Yep. And so the game is bad. But to your initial question, it doesn't have to be this bad. Fear sells, right? We know this. In any, in any place where story is powerful, which is pretty much every place in the world, every institution, you will always get faster results on mobilizing the people you want to mobilize to the actions you want by scaring them. That is always true. But not every institution just capitulates to that. It doesn't mean you have to all capitulate to that. What I do think is it means, like I said before, look, we need our fighters. I want, I think a healthy society has a healthy number of agitators who care a little bit, not, not even a little bit less, who don't care about being nice. They are fighting for what they believe in. Like that's the kind of agitation I absolutely want and love. And if sometimes that means that you are insulting the other side, fine. I think it's fine so long as it's balanced, right? With other ways and other methods. But this polarization is sort of allowing only one way to work and everyone else has to be in the shadows. Yeah. So no, <laughs> no, I reject this. Not in my country. <laughs> no. Yeah. It's a tough balance to strike. Now I will admit that I do not have a fun seg to this next topic, but I will say, speaking of the internet and its uh, unhealthy ways that it motivates us, nine years isn't that long in the real world, but it, it might as well be 50 years in internet time. And I want to call back, Monica, to a TEDx talk that you did nine years ago. Oh my gosh, In, no. in 2012. <laughs> I, I know, it's a long time ago. I go yeah. deep. It's a TEDx talk entitled Speak or Be Spoken For. And in that talk, you quoted Emerson, who was talking about the importance of self-expression. And after you quoted him, you said, quote, to Emerson, self-expression is inherent to who we are. We have eyes so we can say what we see. And isn't that a great way to look at the world? We're all standing in different places from different perspectives, different lives. And if we share what we see, won't we understand each other better? Mm. Won't we be able to accomplish our goals better? We're living in a time where that's precisely what's happening and precisely what's possible, end quote. Now, I hear this quote, and I believe I can see how you intended it, that by you sharing your lived experience and I sharing mine, we can reach a common ground of empathy and understanding, mm -hmm. which is, you know, empathy is sort of a buzzword in this podcast, and accomplish our mutual goals 
together. Mm-hmm. But that monkey, Monica. Oh, no, the monkey, no. The, mon- the monkey's the right. monkey dude. on the shoulder. The monkey's so right. <laughs> he might hear this, you know, and gesture with his banana at anti-vax campaigns or inaccurate social statistics that cause panic in circles both left and right. Mm-hmm. Moral panics taking over schools. Well, it's a long list. How do we find a balance between sharing what we see and knowing when it's good to listen to our leaders, be they political, medical, social, and otherwise? Mm. And as an addendum, is there anything that just thinking back to that TEDx talk in 2012, which again, feels like a lifetime ago, considering everything that's gone on, anything you want to reflect on in addition to that? Oh my gosh. Well, you have just brought brought me back to a far more, <laughs> I think a time when I was a lot more enthusiastic about everything that so many people were very enthusiastic about 10 years ago, right? I mean, wasn't 2012 the year of the Arab Spring? Am I crazy? Maybe that was a little bit before. It was right around that time, yeah. There was a sense of renewal and and renaissance of democracy because of what these incredible social platforms were making possible. And we traced that to the freedom of expression being given a channel that was more unlimited all across the world than we'd ever thought possible. It was beautiful. I mean, you remember? It was beautiful back then, (laughs) you know? And so what the quote you just shared with with listeners was me speaking very much from that place. Because I I was a a columnist for, um, gosh, that year, I think it was the Seattle Times, but but I I was a, a columnist on technology for many years. And it was particularly d- during a time when all these social platforms and everything were coming up and people didn't understand them for very like quaint old reasons. Like, you know, I was writing the columns about people who were afraid that, you know, pedophiles stalked their kids in college on Facebook and stuff like that. It was way back then, right? <laughs> With those level of concerns. And boy, oh boy, have we kind of grown up into a different, just a whole different category of stuff now. So so I say, I say with a lot of humility, you know, I, I'm looking very differently as at a lot of the things that I wrote and I said back then. I'm trying not to regret that enthusiasm that people shared because it was real. I think now looking back, it just wasn't matched with an equal enthusiasm for listening. We say listen very glibly, you know, oh, we have to hear each other, you guys, we have to listen. You know, and then we say, oh, yeah, well, what is listening? Well, it's making sure that you're not just waiting for your turn to speak. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. So it's mostly just paying attention and being present. Sure, yeah, okay. <laughs> you know, and we sort of leave it at that. I think that was sort of our mistake, right? Which I don't blame us for necessarily. It's like we couldn't have known is with that, with that explosion of expression, we didn't compensate. We didn't say, okay, how the heck do we hear each other? We just figured it would happen organically, right? We made the assumptions that technologists made in the 90s. I mean, technologies in the 90s were doing, made the same mistake. They thought, oh my gosh, the internet, the internet, you guys. Now someone from China can speak to someone from Russia and from the United States. Like we're all going to get along, just wait, right? And wow. Curb your enthusiasm, music starts to play. (laughs) Right. So it's the same story, right? It all, it all repeats itself. And I'm going to have to ask you to repeat your question because I've forgotten what it was. I know I was getting there. Just to add to what you said, it, it seems like we've gotten to this place now where we all want to speak our truth, but we all want to say the other person's lying. Exactly. That's it. I think you just nailed it. That's it. We think that the freedom of speaking our truth is the freedom of not having to really contend with anybody else's, <laughs> you know, and, and look at the pressure that that's created for us 
I mean, it's a paradox, right? We, we need to be out there with our opinions and who we are, and we need to do it bravely, and we need self-care, and we need, <laughs> you know, and we need branding, and we need confidence, and all of that stuff. And somehow, we also just need like a peaceful world. <laughs> right. <laughs> like a stable, calm world will just kind of happen somehow. Like, no, no. And we've, we've seen that over and over again. And, and I think it's, I think the crisis is truly, truly, truly one of, of listening. Yes. And again, I feel like I'm saying it glibly because we haven't taken the time to really explain. But for me, the most important thing about what listening really is to me is that listening is about showing people they matter. Listening is not, I'm paying attention to you. I'm not multitasking. I'm not looking at my phone. I'm really listening. No, listening is showing people they matter. So as far as I'm concerned, the reason that we're like swimming in things like misinformation, right? As a journalist, the narrative I'm supposed to subscribe to is that misinformation is happening because our culture no longer values truth. I don't think that's it at all. I think we're swimming in misinformation because our culture does not know how to listen to real concerns coming from real people. And I think that when people are not heard, this is just, we know this from living our lives. We don't have to be particularly educated or informed to know this. It's like when people don't, when people aren't heard, they'll find a way to be seen one way or another. And it might be by folks who are exploiting, right? That basic human need to belong. Isn't it that, but also the flattening of the distance between experts and non-experts? Yeah. I could never have seen myself saying this in 2012, right? Because I am pro-democracy. <laughs> Let's put that <laughs> on the record. But I feel like the democratization of when you tweet something and when I tweet something, they're the same thing. Right. So you're a unverified doctor on Twitter who has a degree from Harvard and 20 years of expertise, but I'm a verified so-and-so from Georgia or Massachusetts or whatever, and I have 100,000 followers, mm. so why should I listen to you right. when I have an Instagram following that dwarfs yours? Right. You know, and then meanwhile, the, the, the person with all the expertise, right, is trying to get their message out. Right. But when you create a platform in which everyone's voices are heard at the same level, right. and oftentimes people who have no expertise in a given topic have wider reach than the people who do have expertise in a given topic. Mm. It just feels like a recipe for chaos. So it's not just you listening to me, Monica, as I say this with goodwill, like a, mm -hmm. an average citizen and me average right. citizen. How do we also find that way to defer to people when it comes to very specific topics yeah. of expertise in which it shouldn't necessarily be democratic where a WebMD search to call back is not held yeah. at the same regard as someone who specializes in oncology. Yeah, you know what? I think that ship has sailed. Oh my god! Honestly, like it, it, here, here's what I mean. I, I hope I understand. I, I hope I hope you're I hope not I right, but I no, think you I, are. I hope I understand what you what you just said. But that was my sort of instant reaction. I was like, yeah, let it fly. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think that ship has sailed. And I back in 2012, 2011, 2010, what you said was a problem. I and many others were saying was a liberation. The fact that somebody could speak at the same volume as Lady Gaga, you know, as the President of the United States. I was like, whatever. Was something to celebrate. Because, oh my gosh, here's this democratization is what we called it back then. This democratization of communication. Everyone has a shot of being heard. 
So that's complexity for you, right? The same thing can look evil and angelic, depending on how you look at it. And so I want to point that out, that it's true that experts, a lot of experts who need to be heard aren't being heard because they are drowned out by folks who don't share their expertise. But this is where this is where I want to kind of name. You said that people can all speak at the same level, but that's not actually practically true, right? Like if I joined Twitter today on a new account, no, I can't speak at the same level. I need an expertise to get to that level. That's the problem. Because because the or just a very viral TikTok. Right, right, right. But no, but but let me let me right, but let me let me like expound on that. Because you're talking about sort of expertise on things that really kind of matter and the you know, whether it's public health or or whatever, right? Like that kind of expertise. But on social media, there is an expertise of social media. So the people who actually reach really high levels are really good at being influential on social media. That is its own yeah. new expertise. So that's the people who get to the level where they drown out experts who ought to be heard. And what, what I want to do is demystify, demystify that expertise, that sort of almost, almost like hidden world of how folks get manipulated into how we kind of raise people's blood pressure and get them to do things that maybe if they had thought about it for another minute, they wouldn't have done. I think a lot of these bad actors, that's that's what they're doing to us, right? We know this. I mean, coming back full circle, right? This is this is part of why I want us to be so much more curious about people because we are being tempted, I think, to 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 fall into this kind of helplessness that well, it's all it's all over for us, man. I mean, look around, right? <laughs> look around, like the people who are screaming you know, nonsense and the people who believe them. What are we gonna do? I think that there actually is there is a way. There is a way to dismantle this. The bad news, I suppose, which is also good news, is that it's not waiting for politicians to figure it out. It's not waiting for the media to figure it out. I think it's each of us being just a little bit more open and a little bit more curious to the people next to us, you know, to the people that we are around, so that fewer people go to social media from that place of vulnerability, from that place of just needing certainty and smooth narratives that make them feel good. If we do that for each other, right, even a little bit more, 0.01% more for each other, I think misinformation would go down. I think vitriol would go down. I think our politicians would be able to do their jobs better. I think it's on us. I really do. I think you're right. And that I, I want to do a follow-up to that, but I can link it to a question in the next and final section of our talk, which takes us to the Evergrey and allows me to talk about my love of Seattle for a hot second while you Yay! have to listen to me. So your love of Seattle is clear and infectious. In 2017, you gave a talk called, quote, how to make Seattle your own in 10 easy steps about how to feel welcome in uh, the Emerald City, which brings us to the Evergrey, quote, a newsletter all about Seattle delivered fresh daily at 7am, end quote which makes it sound like a delicious bagel. Now, <laughs> I, I'm I'm a bit I'm a bit biased. Mm -hmm. Monica, I've been a fan of your city since I first visited in 2009 for a mm -hmm. childhood friend's wedding. Mm -hmm. My favorite neighborhood is Ballard. Yay. I've ridden uh, a bike down the Burke Gilman Trail all the way to Red Hook Brewing, stuffed my gullet on that thick cut bread from Brimmer and Heel mm -hmm. Tap 
more than probably any doctor would recommend. And <laughs> I've played board games at Mox Boarding House at least <sighs> half a dozen times. Oh my God, to, I love that place. Just to keep this list short. Now we could go through all my favorite spots in Capitol Hill, downtown, Queen Anne, Columbia City, Fremont, and much more, but I'll, I'll spare you and the listeners. But the Evergrey is perfectly tailored for people like me. What with its mm. series on Seattleisms, where uh, you break down words and phrases that help folks sound like locals, to tips on, on where to eat sustainably raised fish, and interviews with local beekeepers. So why did you and your co-founder, Anika Anand, start the Evergrey? We were in journalism and we were feeling frustrated. <laughs> was, was one part of it, one piece of it, was that. Some of the conventional attitudes in journalism and this is obviously always changing, but back then it was hard for some newsroom leaders to listen to the comments, to understand why it was important maybe to hold events or to go talk to people more. You know, it was, it was a sense of sort of, we're in the newsroom, we know what's up and it's on the city, it's on the locals, right, to read us. It's on them. They need to come read us so that they're informed and that's how they're good citizens and that's that. Speaking only for myself, I mean, I just saw something so broken in that formula because what, you know, people, people come to a city and then they're trying to put together a great local life. They're trying to make friends. They're trying to understand the changes going on around them. They're trying to relate to the city and they each have their own angle on that for all of um, just tons of different reasons. And coming from that place, it's just infuriating to me, right? Like that, why wouldn't you want to understand the people in the city like way more? Listen to them way more. <laughs> get, get all your cues about what is even relevant to them from one day to the next. Not like a survey every few years or whatever presented terribly on, 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 on a website, but like actually have your entire home base be in the lifeblood of the city itself. I mean, I, I know this sounds really epic, and, but, but that's what it was in my head. One of the internal mottos that I had was where others are distant, we are close. But that, that was the Evergrey. Our five core values, curious, honest, useful, bold, and inclusive. We wanted to be all those things, but we knew that if we wanted to do any of those things well, we were going to have to make a ton of relationships, like really connect with people. It wasn't your traditional kind of, you know, rag with just bunch of stories and, and people, you know, who form their relationships and do the reporting. No, it was grounded. The DNA is the people of Seattle. That is where the heart is. That is where the roots are. We have to keep connected. You know, we're not just reporting. My God, like we're convening. We're getting people together all the time. We did events all the time. We did a, a series on speed friending because we, we didn't shy away from the fact that Seattle was the fastest growing city in the country when we founded the Evergrey and that people were streaming into the city trying to find their place. And we wanted to help them do that because we felt that if we help people connect to their city and to each other, the city itself becomes better as a result, right? We all want to live in a better city. So let's do that for each other. I believe so much in, in that, that like everything kind of comes down to the connections that people make. And we don't have to just sit back and then hope that they magically happen. We can help each other. That was the whole theory of the Evergrey. And, and there it goes, you know, it's, it's awesome. Yeah. And it sounds like a, a good way to counter, not everyone is going to understand, but the Seattle freeze, Oh God, yes. famously so. <laughs> the Evergrey is especially important in a city like Seattle. All of what you've said is wonderful. And it, and it ties into the opening paragraph of a feature uh, that was done about you and Annika in 2018, 
you were listed as two of Seattle Met's 50 most influential women in Seattle that year. And the intro to the feature says, quote, and this sort of echoes what you were saying, quote, Monica Guzman was only gone a year on a fellowship at Harvard. But when she returned to her home in Seattle in the summer of 2016, the former post intelligencer reporter and Seattle Times tech columnist discovered a city transformed, mm. worse traffic, more homeless encampments, and a general sense of dwindling accessibility as communities mm. moved further apart. And then it quotes you saying, so then we started the Evergrey, end quote. Yeah. And that's from how the Evergrey fosters community and ever-growing Seattle. So before I get to sort of the bulk of my question, would you say that that is a pretty accurate additional description of the newsletter? Oh, yeah. No, 100%. We were completely rooted in this in, in this extraordinarily disruptive time where people who had lived in Seattle a really long time and thought they knew the city had to reevaluate their relationship with it because it was changing so fast. And then at the same time, you had all these people who were new to the city and just weren't really sure what to make of it, how to find their own place in it, how to relate to it. Yeah, we, we needed help, right? Everyone needed to kind of help each other out. And that's what we were there for. Yeah. And I think that that is a, a worthwhile and noble, and I'm not using that in any small way, goal. And I think that it is very easy for anyone listening to this podcast, and especially easy for myself doing this research, to draw a straight and direct emotional through line from you starting the Evergrey to working with Braver Angels mm. to hosting the interview series for Northwest Newsmakers, right? Mm. You seem like a person who is very driven towards creating community towards mm -hmm. finding commonality with others, to creating and sharing communities with people unlike yourself. So I want to start my question by acknowledging all of that. Mm -hmm. But I, I want to tie the question back to something that I said initially when we were talking about potential limitations of Braver Angels, mm -hmm. which is this idea that of sort of parallel tracks, right? Between what's happening in society and then what people who are like-minded and sort of aligned and sort of what they want to do with their own communities and lives and how these mm. two things might be coexisting, but not necessarily intersecting. So right. I'm going to rattle off some statistics here just as a reference point, and then I'll ask my question. So okay. I appreciate the runway. According to the Seattle Times, homelessness has grown in Seattle and King County by more than 30% since 2010. And Washington State set a homicide record in 2020 with 302 murders. In June of this year, 2021, it was Seattle's deadliest month since 2008, which was the first year that data was publicly available from the Seattle Crime Dashboard. And it was a 125% increase since June of the previous year, 2020. By August of this year, there were already over 200 deaths from fentanyl overdoses in King County alone, which exceeded the 172 deaths recorded over 12 months in all of 2020. Again, I want to phrase this next question delicately, and I want to do so by partially turning it toward myself. So as I mentioned in a recent episode with Irshad Manji, I started this podcast, at least initially, largely as sort of a therapeutic project because so mm. much of our discourse and our politics felt like it was spiraling out of my control to such an extent that I felt helpless. Mm. And so I figured, well, I never want to run for public office because I'm not a glutton for punishment. <laughs> so that's off the table. But maybe what I can do is start a sort of little community where like-minded people who may be feeling similarly out of sorts mm -hmm. can tune in and listen to people, perhaps like us and other guests, talk with one another about important topics in a civil and nuanced way, right? Mm -hmm. So all of this is to say, the Evergrey, Braver Angels, and I'm posing this question with the hope that you can push back on me here. Yeah. 
The Evergrey is a vibrant, informative, community-centered work that I think anyone visiting or moving to Seattle or living in Seattle should sign up for if they haven't already. But are these projects, with my podcast as a prime example, a way for us to deal with a feeling that these problems are entrenched and intractable, and so we create communities that help us feel centered when so much feels out of our control? Are these projects running adjacent to these larger societal issues that so many people who are like-minded and well-intentioned feel like they can't change? So let's create communities where those of us who might feel exhausted or worn out or politically homeless can go. Or do these projects, in your view, can they affect Mm. the larger problems, which oftentimes seem intractable? 100%. 100%. I mean, the Evergrey, one of the Gosh, one of the most amazing days that we had <sighs> must have been 2018, I think, tw- maybe 2019. No, 2018. We did this series of partnerships with organizations around the city, and it was all about volunteering. So we had a theme around homelessness. And so we got something like 20, 22 Evergrey readers out to help build a tiny home village in a neighborhood in Seattle. And as we were, there, you know, I'm I'm looking around going, wow, (laughs) like, this is awesome. Here's everyone actually doing something together and going for the paint, having the sandwiches, you know, that we'd kind of figured out a a way to get and talking about homelessness. And I remember that there was one woman, there was one woman there. She was a bit quiet for a while. And then she kind of started talking to me. And she said that it was the first time she'd ever volunteered in her life for anything. And that really meant a lot to me because, because the whole point of the Evergrey, I mean, it's exactly what you say. Like, this is not a salve. In fact, from the very beginning, I was like, no way is this going to be some artificial like lip service to the idea of making our city better. No way. I know what that looks like. And I, I want no part of that. Right. So, I mean, thing after thing, we were always asking ourselves, how do we get people to do something? Like, what can they do? And that's what it was all ultimately about. Do you mind if I ask, when you were speaking with this woman who had never volunteered before, Yeah. did she say to you what caused her to, was there something in what she read in the Evergrey? Like what, what motivated her to change? I remember that she said that she thought it would be fun, right? What I read in that was, I don't think she said this to me, but that she wanted a community. And she kind of started to make one, right? Like I, I didn't follow up with her afterward. We had a thing in the Everwood Gray where we, we name people in our community as often as we possibly can, because that is one of the ways in which we show that our city is us, that it's people, it's all people, right? You know, I might talk about Mayor Jenny Durkin or whatever in the Evergrey, but if I'm talking about, I'm going to make up a name, right? Like Melanie Malay or something. And Melanie Malay is a reader. And, and thanks to Melanie, we knew about this opportunity that we are now passing on to you for you to go and help with so-and-so. Melanie Malay's name is in bold in our newsletter. Not Jenny Durkin's, but Melanie's. We are the sum of this. Like We, we together are who, who matters, is, is the people here. That, that, was, that was in there. On the, that was the bedrock of the whole project. I wanted people to see their own impact even the smallest thing they did, the tiniest thing, you know, a little calendar invite or a little tiny tip on a story that led us somewhere, you know, where, where most journalists were just kind of like, oh yeah, thanks, you know, hang up the phone or whatever, and then just kind of go do it. Like we thanked everyone for everything because we were doing this together. 
Oh, and it's funny. It's like amazing because you're you're making me really miss it. <laughs> you're making me like remember how great that was. But the thing is, I'm I'm trying. There is a through line. I'm trying to bring that to something much more national to a project that, frankly, I think that that polarization really is kind of like the problem that keeps other problems from being solved. I think I was hitting a wall telling stories in Seattle because of the rampant and incredible distrust that exists across these ideological divides, I couldn't stand it anymore. I just couldn't stand it anymore. I needed to get, I needed to get out and, and work on the elephant in the room. And so that's what, that's what I'm trying to do. And it's a different scale, but in, in a lot of ways it isn't because Brave Angels has like what, 78 local alliances and places all over the, the country. And the people I'm meeting are people that, oh my gosh, I'd never heard from. Seattle is so blue. I, I'm learning so much about different points of view. It's just, it's absolutely overwhelming, <laughs> the opportunities here and, and very challenging for me and frankly, scary. So I don't know, you're making me really, <laughs> you're making me really go deep, <laughs> but we do have to do something. This is, this can't just be therapeutic. No, no. If I can follow up on something you just said, where you were talking about kind of reaching a, a breaking point, a point of frustration where you felt, you know, I have to do something, right? And if I can follow up on that, doing research for interviews like this, you know, allows me, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. to really dig in, right? And obviously, I can't learn everything about you because everything about you isn't on the internet, right? Wow. Scary if it was. <laughs> but I can, you know, I can go back 9, 10, 11 years and in some small way, trace the arc of, if not your life, right? At least I can see some thematic through lines in the work that you do. And so I see someone who was always motivated by a sense of wanting to create a community, right? Whether it was that 2012 talk or the, I want to say 2018, how to feel welcome in Seattle. So when you say that you reached a breaking point where you felt like you had to do something, I look at at least the last 10 years of your life and I see someone who was always doing something. So I guess my question is, is what does a breaking point look like for Monica Guzman? When did you reach it? Mm. And what did more doing more look like to you? Was it just needing to get out of local and Mm. go national? I just, I would just love to hear more about that. Yeah. Well, (laughs) I mean, this is where I have to take a thread, you know, that hasn't come up and, and weave it in. And, and you've probably seen me talk about this at other places, but I, you know, I am, I am liberal. I'm, I'm blue. And my parents who are immigrants and have a lot of that immigrant pluck, hundred percent, who brought me and my brother over from Mexico, uh, they are you know, very conservative and you voted for Trump, you know, as Mexican immigrants, something started happening around 2015, 2016, that just kind of grew in me. And it was the dissonance between how I understood my parents and their politics, despite their being so opposed to me and in, in my political views, and how I sort of, frankly, like just loved them and learned from them. And then how I would see others in my city and beyond talk about folks who made that same choice that my parents made as if they were the absolute scum of the earth. And that that really sort of like it just kind of woke something up in me. I, I've never talked about it this way before, but it did. <sighs> and and it just made me feel like I can't, I can't just let us do this to each other. I can't let us 
stop seeing who each other is because we're so sure we've already got each other figured out. You know, I, I can't stand by and watch these caricatures take over. And they did, man. Like, they, they did so fast. It, it was remarkable. People I absolutely love and, and, and treasure and, and think are so smart, I think falling like victim to these dehumanizing things that we think, right, when we're scared. And, and when we worry about the world and we don't, don't know how to negotiate our, our relationship to it, like, look, I, in, in my whole, like, in my, my career in journalism, I, I was, like, avoiding the political beat. No part of me. I mean, I, I just did not want to touch, you know, city politics as a beat or anything. I just didn't want to get in there, you know, and I never talked about my, my politics. I, I would have, it would have freaked me out, right, to, to say even, I am liberal. Like, now I'm just like, well, duh, yeah, of course I'm liberal. If you know me and know where I am and everything, like, the profile just fits, right? Anyway, but just something, that was the breaking point. I was like, screw this. Like, <laughs> I, can't, I can't just sit back. No, I'm not going to let this happen. You know, we're, we're not seeing each other. We think we have each other figured out. We're reading the media. We're on social media. And, and that's it. And we're telling ourselves like, no, we're not going to talk to our relative or a friend who believes this other things because, because we're just, we're just going to be in a fight. And, and that's the way it's going to be. And like, again, this is all so complicated, right? Like, I understand we do need the fighters. I get it. I get it. We're not going to sit around a fire and, and sing kumbaya. I get it. But for crying out loud, like, can we at least just, just, just hear each other, right? Can you at least speak if you, if you don't know anyone who voted for Trump and you are blue? Can you try? Like, can you try to actually speak to someone who made that decision and ask them about their own decision instead of taking all of these assumptions and just planting them into their story? You don't know their story. You have no idea what you're talking about. We don't know each other. We're talking to each other more than humans have ever talked to each other ever before at a scale that is unbelievable. And we know less. How is that possible? Like, what are we doing? What is in our freaking way? Right? And so, yeah, like now I'm, wow. <laughs> and so that's it. Like, I want to find out what's in the way and I want to get it the hell out of our way. Not because I think it's going to be some utopian, like overnight thing. No, I know this is hard work. I'm just not going to sit back. No, I'll stop there. You know, you're welcome to go on as long as you'd like. <laughs> <laughs> but I will call back to that brilliant description of the internet that you uh, said at the beginning of the show, right? An unplace for unpeople. And the, whether it's uh, the Evergrey or what you want to achieve with Braver Angels or the feelings you felt when people were talking about your immigrant parents like they knew them. When all we read about a new city we move to, right, is the, oh, here's a new crime stat, or here's the new homelessness issue, or whatever, right? We unpeople and unplace individuals and locations. And when we talk about Trump voters or Biden voters, whoever you want to say, as just this audience, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> this, uh, this group of people we talk about as a single person, we unpeople them. Right. And I think that so many of us have had that experience where we hear someone, oftentimes someone that we perhaps once respected online, a childhood friend, someone who might even know your parents, for instance. Maybe they didn't know who they voted for, 
but you go on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or some other hell site and you hear them talk about deplorable people or the racist, sexist, bigoted people who voted for XYZ. And of course, I'm sure there are people who were all those things. But when you paint people with such a broad brush and then the people being painted with that brush are your loved ones. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't go through exactly what you went through, Monica, but I, I went through enough experiences that were similar that I reached a similar sort of breaking point. And it does not surprise me, again, having just a little bit of research on your background and understanding in some small way what drives you and what you are passionate about, how that could be a breaking point that would motivate you to do what you're doing now. Yep. And I mean, you know, we were talking about the people who come to Brave Angels. There are so many there are so many kind of similar stories, right? Like people, it's, it's people not being able to tolerate what we're doing to each other. Like, we just can't, we can't do this. This is dumb. This is stupid. This is heartless. So let's stop. Let's stop. <laughs> you know, it's got to end. Yeah. Monica, normally I would transition directly into our final question, but I will only because it's my show and I can talk about whatever I want. Before we get to our final question that I ask every guest, what is one of your favorite restaurants and what is one of your favorite activities in Seattle and why? Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Okay. Favorite restaurant. I'm going to go with Din Tai Fung. I don't know if there's a dentai fung in LA. So there is. It's there delicious. is. Yeah. I mean, Soup it's dumplings. not. Yeah, exactly. It's not local to Seattle, but but it's a Taiwanese chain that you know originated in in Taiwan and like is incredible. And my eight and nine year old son for his New Year's resolution was like eat more dentai fung, and so we did. <laughs> we just we just went and got soup dumplings, and it's. Oh gosh, it, there's just nothing like those soup dumplings. Nothing. So, so I'll give it up for Din Tai Fung. It is definitely a destination here. There's two locations in the area, and you have got to get there with your whole party before they sit. They seat you down. They're and always you crowded. Can't, you can't call ahead, and you have to get there. And so usually, like you know, you get there, and then you have a plan. Like like someone kind of sits there while the rest of you go shopping for two hours. You know, until they call your table <laughs> because you just that's just what you have to do. And what was your second question about Seattle? What's one of your favorite activities? I'll go to the thing that I, the very first year that I lived here, I loved doing this and I, I still do when I can. There's something called the International Children's Fountain. It's right there at Seattle Center. It's the most like cliche kind of tourist location. But the Children's Fountain is this, in the summer, there's like all these parents bring their kids, right? And their kids just like have their bathing suits and everyone just runs through the fountain. And it's like this beautiful kind of almost little crater in the ground and the fountain dances to music. And I once did a story on the person who choreographs the fountain and, you know, to the music and it's just utter joy. You sit there and I'll, I'll, I'll work or I'll read and I'll just watch joy happen in front of me in the form of like kids pulling their parents into the splash zone. <laughs> and man, it's just like a celebration of of everything. I really love it. Okay, one more question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> when when did you know you had fallen in love with the city? Oh, <laughs> my answer came immediately to mind. I can't remember exactly how many years I'd been here. Somewhere around maybe four, something like that. Where it was, it must have been early October, late September. And I opened the door 
just to go out for the day or whatever. And I'm in my flip-flops or sandals and I smell the air. This all happened without my consciousness being alert for it at all. Okay. It was all unconscious. I smell the air. I recognize fall and I close the door and I go back indoors to go get my boots to switch to boots because it's time. And then like, as I was kind of walking to get my boots, like something just kind of hit me and I was like, Oh my God. (laughs) I'm so happy. I am more excited about the fall than the summer. This is, this is when Seattle comes alive. This is when Seattle is what it is. This is the evergrey. This is when the gray comes. This is when the rain comes. This is when the city gets its definition and its pride. You know, th- this is where this is where our coffee shop culture comes from. This is where our third place culture comes from. This is why, you know, you might walk around on a rainy evening in a happening neighborhood and see almost no one in the streets because everyone is inside, right? Like forming relationships and all these all these communal living rooms with some warm drink in their hands. This is, this is Seattle. This is it. You know, I can't wait. Like, let's do this. Get the boots on. Let's go. <sighs> yeah. Just hearing you talk about it and I don't even live there, but I, I connect with it so much. I, I was kind of a weirdo uh, here in LA because um, at least up until obviously 2020, I would take uh, summer vacations in Seattle almost every year. Mm. And, you know, my friends would be going to Europe or Hawaii or some tropical island or whatever. And they'd be like, oh, where are you going, Michael? I'd be like, Seattle. And they're like, what? <laughs> and I'm like, it's just the most beautiful summers, guys. You just, you don't understand oh, yeah. it. Oh yeah, absolutely. And you drive two hours up north to Anacortes and go to the San Juan Islands. I mean, oh, just, my God. it doesn't get any better than that. It really doesn't. I'm so, I'm so that so thrilled that you love it. I mean, why don't you move? Why don't you move here? I am trying. <laughs> I just have to I have to find the right job opportunity, but it's not for lack of wanting. Okay, cool. Oh, we will. I'll keep you posted. Please do. Please do. <laughs> but to take us to the final question that I ask every guest, I would be remiss if I did not ask you. As individuals, Monica, we are not an audience, but rather individual human beings, and we are limited as we've spoken about in this very conversation, in our time, our energy, and often in our capacity for empathy. Even the most well-intentioned, caring person can't be thinking of every other person, every group of people all the time. It's just impossible. So, is there someone or a group of people in your life or in the world at large right now that you would like to take a moment and offer empathy to? I want to offer empathy to everyone who feels unseen and misunderstood. I think I've I've learned a lot about that experience lately. And it can happen for so many reasons. Our homeless neighbors in Seattle feeling invisible, like literally walking through the streets, right? Doing things that would seem kind of abnormal and, and strange perhaps, but nobody nobody looks at them. No one notices. And I think about people who feel misunderstood in their own family, people who go to the internet as a refuge because no one in their lives can hear them, maybe. And, and maybe they find something there that's not good, but at least it makes them feel like they matter. I want to f- offer empathy to them, too. Everyone who's just like sick and tired of being undercounted because of something in their identity. Oh my Lord. 
and we've all had, I shouldn't say we all, but a lot of us can relate to that experience, even in some, some of the smallest ways, you know, being bullied in school or whatever, like there's always something, but there are folks who have that in 10 layers or more, right? Oh man, just, just that, that experience of feeling alone in a world that is talking all the time, of, of feeling you're shouting into the ether, you don't know how to connect to anything that's... God, I want to fix that. <laughs> you know, I, I want to fix that. And no matter, no matter where you have gone on that path, even if you've gone somewhere you maybe you're not proud of, I, I still have empathy for you. Well, thank you, Monica, for sharing that with us. And thank you so much for your time and your work. And without blowing up your ego too much here, I would imagine that anyone who has listened to this conversation would say that someone with your mindset and with your goals is probably very well suited for an organization like Braver Angels and especially someone who is in charge of storytelling. So thank you for your work. Thank you for your time. And thanks for remaining curious so that when sometimes the rest of us aren't, we can look to you. Hmm. Thank you. This was, this was amazing. Thank you for such thoughtful, incredible questions. You've, you've really made me think about things at a level that I haven't. And I really appreciate that. Thank you. It's my honor. Thank you. 